calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover. And you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good people, this is Brad King. You're listening to the Downtown Routers Jam podcast. I'm actually sitting in a hotel room in Chicago right now, overlooking the whole city. I always tell my wife, take the points. So I am part of the IHG program, like Hilton or Holiday Inn Express, all that kind of stuff. So anytime I travel, I always um, I get points. And so as I was coming up to Chicago this time, I used some of them to get what is the presidential suite in this Holiday Inn um, Hotel. Which one is it? It's the Chicago Mart Plaza. It's amazing. I'm like right in the middle of downtown. I'm on the 20th floor. I'm looking across the whole city. I can see traffic, right? It's amazing. It's amazing. It's the nicest thing that I've ever done in my whole life And I'm up here recording podcasts. And everybody that's come in today has been like, holy shit, like, they're all Chicago residents. Um, it's folks from Curbside Splendor Publishing coming in, and everybody has said the same thing, which is we never fucking get to see any of this. So we've taken, like, a million pictures, and we're shooting videos and doing that obnoxious thing where we're posting them on Instagram and saying, like, ah, fuck off, like, this is where we're at. So this is my favorite thing. This is after the Riders Jam. We're, uh, we're sort of in between two and three, and everything is calm right now. I'm not running around trying to wrangle people. What is terrifying, though, is that in 10 days, I will be doing uh, a public reading on December 1st. If you happen to be in Indiana, uh, Indianapolis, I'll, uh, I'll be at Indy Reads Books on December 1st. Uh, I think that's the day. It's the first Monday of the month at 7 p.m. I'll be doing a reading from three pieces, The Summer of Run, uh, So Far Appalachia, and something that I wrote for Invictus earlier in the introduction. So we have that going on. Uh, the Writer's Jam Volume 3 will be coming in February. It's part of our um, uh, partnership with Indie Literary Pub Crawl. So we're going to do a fundraiser for Indie Reads Books. So you should definitely sign up for the newsletter so you can find out all about that. I'm actually getting ready to go to dinner tonight. 
which now that I'm here in this room, uh, as much as I want to go see my friend, I kind of want to sit up here and overlook the city and do writing. Um, but of course, this was the time that I left all my writing at home because I thought, well, I'll be doing stuff. I don't need my books and I don't need my writing because I have too many things to do. And then uh, there was a couple cancellations. So now I have two hours to do nothing. Um, so I may actually fire up the computer here in just a minute because I just spent the last two hours having amazing conversations with uh, a couple different writers. And one of the things that is really has just caught my attention is this idea of purposefulness, which I know I've talked about before, but um, I had two conversations today, and one was about sort of structurally getting up every day and writing, and the other was about um, observing little moments and sort of looking for the kinds of things that um, strike you as um, narrative elements, but just kind of putting them aside and like letting them percolate for a while. And this is what's the second one struck me because I don't really think like that. Or maybe I do. I don't know. Maybe I do think like that. You know, I sit down and, like, word vomit all over the place and let all the stuff come out. And then I sift through it and figure out what's there. And um, to hear a writer talk about who, who started off as a visual artist or who still is a visual artist. So it doesn't think line, linearly in the way that I do. Um, it's interesting. But uh, the conversation today is with uh, Ben... Tanzer, who uh, won the Writers' Jam, who I eventually called a co-winner with um, Angela Jackson Brown, and, and and it's our, he's a um, we are a lot alike. We have a, a similar kind of background, and we have a, a very similar sensibility about the world. And why I wanted to talk to him was he is a, a dad, which I'm not, but he writes about the world and experiences the world in a very similar way that I do. And I think that there's not enough writing and writers who are men who talk about these kinds of things. And so much of our conversation, the first part is really about his life. And the second part is this whole exposition about what it means to be a man today and about the ways in which literature and writing about manhood and being a father and just understanding what the sort of having spaces to talk about um, being a man means. Because it's so much, as I sit down to write, I know this is a thing that I, um, I have to beat out of my head right now, which is not to worry about, I don't want to, this will sound weird, but not to worry that this is the 21st century. Which simply means this, that there are, like Gen X, my generation, the millennials, like we, like the world has substantially changed from our parents' time. Um, things that were not the norm are very much the norm now. You know, things like gay marriage, crime, you know, we um, are going through this renaissance of women in the world, um, which makes the world a better place, but also makes men reevaluate their space and their place and, and how they navigate through that. And it's a thing we have not as men, done well. Um, and so it's it's fascinating to me to, to talk to uh, Ben, who writes about this stuff, but not in a luxury kind of, here's the navigation tool for it. It is, this is what I'm trying to do, and this is sort of how I'm navigating through these systems. And it gives, th this sort of way that he writes about it, gives us a space, or at least gave us a space, to sit down and talk and really figure out, like, 
how does that voice operate and what's our responsibility and like how do you reevaluate manhood in in public when much of that navigation requires us to critique the very kinds of things that have given us privilege and all these kinds of um, societal things that 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 do make navigating the world for two white guys in their 40s much easier than other folks right and yet because of that of that ease for which we have been given some privilege now as the world shifts it's also now our responsibility to to if not help facilitate that in terms of like allowing other things to happen without fighting because it's reflexive um but also stepping out of the way and saying like there are okay like there are just times that maybe we don't have to be the center of the show and it's why i love his writing because he does carve out those spaces, and I loved our conversation. We ended up we ended up spending about two and a half hours in the hotel room today just uh, talking. So I'm excited for you all to hear this. Uh, you should check out his book, Lost in Space. That's his most recent book. Um, he's written some other things. He's got two or three things coming out. So we'll talk about all those today. And now is our interview with Ben. All right, so here, this was what interested me, uh, was that most authors freak the fuck out at the writer's jam because they're performing their piece instead of doing it, and you seem very comfortable getting up and telling your story. Was that bullshit, or were you, are you comfortable in that kind of environment? It's a very funny thing. I'm comfortable in that environment, and I had never done that before that night. <laughs> I mean, honestly, never. Never. I've never done anything where I wasn't reading off of a page before. Really? Yeah. I mean, I present all – the funny thing is I present all the time for work and lately at writers' conferences, which I love, and I don't look at my notes at all. But no one had ever asked me to tell a story without notes. I have got. I was really pumped afterward. I just thought this is the way you're supposed to do it. Let's see how it goes, yeah. which is how I do things, you know. Um, but I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad it went well. I had no idea how that was going to go. I was sort of, I was sort of thinking this might be a really bad fail, but I'll be able to say I finally tried that. It's actually worse that it seemed to go okay. I yeah. think because now I want to do that again. Yeah, it was um, one of the really interesting parts of this is that authors balk at first and then they come around. Like when it's done, they're like, "Holy shit!" Like the invigoration of that sort of experience of getting feedback from people. Um, afterwards, they like. <laughs> they don't love it <laughs> leading up to it. Yeah, it was funny. Like, I, I saw it as a, a new thing to try. Yeah. You know, one of the, uh, this probably sounds more egocentric than I mean it to, but maybe I don't. Maybe it is egocentric. Particularly with Lost in Space, people have been encouraging me to try to create, like, a monologue. Oh, that's like, totally a one-man show. Yeah I, yeah, I don't think like that, but now it's in my head. Yeah. So that sort of going well last week made me think, Maybe that's real. Yeah, like, yeah. maybe I could create. I don't know how to do that, but um, I was glad. I mean, that's a difference, between, I guess, between nonfiction and fiction, too. Yeah. No one ever read one of my novels and was like, dude, there's a one-man show waiting. And I don't know why there would be, but uh, now I'm sort of inspired, and I want to thank you because I had never thought of doing what we tried last week. That's two 30-minute acts. That's absolutely. Or maybe a 45 with a short break and then a 15-minute, like, epilogue. Um, yeah, no, it was great. It was totally amazing. So let's go back. To, we're going to go back to the start. Where were you born? I was born in Washington, D.C. Really? I lived there until I was four. My parents had escaped from New York City. I'm not sure why that was. 
Like, I don't know what got them there. It may have just been the fact that my mom's mother died, and they wanted to be near my grandfather. It may not be. But anyway, we were there for four years, and then they moved us to upstate New York. So I can't claim a birthright, but I do claim a lot of uh, fealty. Is that the right word? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm a, I love upstate New York, and um, my memories growing up are really fairly much only positive about that. So from 4 to 18 you know, elementary school, so then a high school, that's where I live. And what was the town? Binghamton, New York. Oh, okay. Which is right on the Pennsylvania border and right on the Susquehanna River. Uh-huh. I mean, it's funny because you were talking about Pittsburgh earlier. Yep. Binghamton, which is not as cool as Pittsburgh. But, again, it's a city of rivers and bridges. Yeah. You know. So uh, what did you do in high school? Like, were you a writer? Like, were you reading no. from a kid? Like, I was an obsessive, compulsive fucking – are we allowed to swear on yeah. yours? Okay, I want to be careful. Yeah. yeah. No. I think uh, the first great thing that ever happened to me was that I figured out reading – really quickly you know like i don't know what i was doing before that i was a happy kid but man as soon as i was able to open a book and almost immediately i wanted to read like big books Uh like not conscious but i thought it wasn't like i thought the things they give you at school aren't big enough yep but i was insatiable part of this being insatiable so you find what's around you but then i started hearing about things and i thought that's what people read so yeah always read a lot never wrote except i do tell the story i took a required creative writing class um, in senior year, I wrote a short story for that class. I wrote all the time. All of it was terrible, and I wasn't into it. But I wrote this one story about a guy who kills himself, um, or at least goes through the act of killing himself, and it got a ton of attention. Um, but like, not but not attention like my kids would get. Like, one of my kids wrote that kind of piece. They would call in a therapist, yeah. and they would call your parents. I was sort of celebrated for it in this very small universe, but I realized later that that kind of affirmation clearly hung. Like, there was something about it I thought maybe – I think I've always had a desire for a level of affirmation sure. in some form. And I think I realized as time went on that writing might be the way. I don't know. I don't know. I can't always untangle it. I just know something clearly got planted as an 18-year-old, but then I didn't write for about 12 years. So what did your parents do? Dad was My dad, who passed away, was an artist. Uh-huh. And he's a great story. I mean, I'm a fan of his. But he's a great story. A high school dropout from a very rough neighborhood in the Bronx. He was like a tough guy. He was in a gang. I mean, all this stuff. But always wanted to paint. And, in fact, really, though, I know this is all exaggerated. It's part of the myth. Really, one of the first times he even got out of his neighborhood was to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Really? Like, a family member took him there. And then he was obsessed. And uh, he's a really interesting guy, and he was a high school dropout. And there's a very famous school called the Art Students League. But then there was a rebel teacher within the Art Students League. I can never remember this guy's name. And my dad took classes with the guy who broke away from this famous school. And this guy's famous for breaking away. And he was my dad. You know, he was, I don't know, I never really got to talk a lot about it with him. But uh, that guy was a huge influence. And my dad was always out of step. Like, whatever was cool or popular, he didn't like. And not, like, as a statement. He just didn't like it. So, like, pop art, he never understood. And I love pop art. And I know he disdained me for that. Like, Rembrandt, is the, those are the guys who he considers right. to be his influences. Rembrandt, But Goya. he was a gang-bang uh, snob, arty snob. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, and I always say this. I'm it's sure. probably more like a greaser gang. He was greaser, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. the photos are unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. He looks like he's, like, off the set of the movie Grease. Right. If they were looking for, like, legitimate hoods. Right. Always had a ducktail, smoking a cigarette. Right. Pretty funny. Like, like rolled up white t- yeah. dude you got it cigarette i mean like right out of central casting that's yeah. awesome i remember when the movie lords of flatbush came out uh-huh. he's like that is a pretty good descriptor like that's a pretty accurate description of what it was like so he so for his living he was a painter so he painted then he taught i mean the income predominantly came from teaching yeah, and always but, yeah, he always was a painter always never never had a nine-to-five job 
And what did your mom do? She's a psychoanalyst. So really? She's a therapist. So I am a product of a therapist and an artist. And so yeah. did they encourage, like, when you were, were they giving you books and reading with you? Like, or did they just sort of no. say, like. My dad always told us stories. And I always had problems sleeping. And he always told us. He told stories to us so much. And I was so needed it so badly that I don't even quite remember this. Some of this is just my mom filling yeah. in that gap. That he actually went to the library to study what other stories there could be. Because really? he didn't have enough. And then when we ran out of those, he didn't stories, have enough that he could tell you, right? Yeah. And then when he ran out of those, he started making stuff up, you know. But yeah, yeah he actually studied like what would be good to read to us, and not like what was proper. Just right. like he needed more information. Yeah. So, uh, but they really didn't. They're funny because they're hugely supportive, hugely. But they didn't really encourage anything. Like people talk about, I wish I had my parents to drag me here or drag me there. I would have gotten more done. Like they didn't do that. They would show up for anything, but we really had to figure everything out on our own. Yeah. You know? What a and gift that is. It's an interesting thing. And as my mom will say, look how well it turned out. So yes, it is a gift, right, when it works out. I've had other friends who are like, fuck, you know, they didn't make me do anything. They didn't show me the way, and I never figured it out either. So yeah. I think it's a gift when you've got a certain sink or swim mentality, which yeah. I might very well have. I always joke around that, you know, the funny thing about being a freshman in college was it was barely a transition for me. I'd always, like, had to take care of laundry. You know, I'd always had to get – my parents never got us up for school. Like, when I was in first grade, I was already dragging myself out of bed. I was setting an alarm even though I didn't know how to tell time, and I was getting to school. You know, and so all this stuff that other people struggle with, and I'm not bragging. I mean, these are very basic things, but yeah. there was no – it was no different. I always had to do those things, you know. And so it's pretty funny when other people are like, oh, my God, how do people get up in the morning? I thought I can't – I couldn't even relate to it. I really, really couldn't. Brothers and sisters? I have a younger brother, total rock star. I love him to death. He's a, he's a Ph.D. counseling psychologist, the nicest guy, funny. He's really funny, and I always stress that because other people say to me all the time, you're pretty fucking funny, bro, but not as funny as your brother. <laughs> and now my kids have adopted that. You're a funny, man, but you're not as funny as Uncle Adam. Uh, and so are you guys close? Very close. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you would say, well, you guys don't live near each other, and you don't go out of your way to see each other all the time, but I feel very close yeah. to him. Yeah. So you read a lot, but you're not really writing. Um, yeah, literally not writing. And then at 18, you sort of experience that. You go to college. What do you, Where are you going to college at? So end up going to college like two hours from home, which didn't seem like a big deal. That would be a regret I would have. Yeah. I didn't even know, my mom hates this, but I didn't even know enough to figure out like what things might be out there that I might enjoy. Right. I applied to a bunch of places for different reasons. I got into some, not others. And then I ended up at SUNY Albany, State mm -hmm. University of New York at Albany, which all of us sort of collectively hated while we were there. I think at the time, it's the kind of place where you end up if you don't have money. We right. didn't have a lot of money, though my mom would hate me saying that because um, she would have done anything to let me go to any college. Right. You know, but... You end up there, a lot of people, not everybody, I'm sure the school would hate this, but the people I was friends with end up there either because you don't have a lot of money or you couldn't get into your first choice right. or you think you're going to be doing better later and so you're sort of waiting. Like right. two of my friends who are have huge business, in the business world, they're huge. Both of them sort of, their parents are kind of like on some level, you go to any grad school you want, but you're, we're not wasting money on undergrad. Like, right. You know, right. So those are the right. kind of, maybe those are just the kind of people I gravitate towards. So all of us sort of like, this is really fun, this kind of sucks, and yet here I'm married to a girl, a woman I met there, and I'm still friends with all those guys. So <laughs> I know it was better than I thought, but it wasn't cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wanted something different. And what did you study? 
double major English and psychology. Okay. So the funny part is I took English classes because literally the only thing I was interested in as a teenager academically was reading books. Yeah. So I thought I'd better take English. Like I had no particular interest in English. And then I took a class which was the Freudian analysis of books. I don't know what it was called. And I had read Catcher in the Rye up till that point. I was 19. I would probably read it 30, 30 times, 25, 30 times. And then I take that class and they totally horsefuck everything I thought about the book. Or at least it was a different version, right? Yeah. The psychoanalytic perspective. I thought, wow, this I was so fascinated by it. And so I thought, I should take some psychology classes. So then I started taking them just for fun. Um, and then someone pointed out that I was actually only X amount of credits away from a double major, which I wasn't even trying to get. Yeah. And so then I double majored. Have you seen the Salinger documentary? No, because people hated it so much. The new one? Yeah, I well, thought people hated it. Oh my god, it's so fucking. Maybe they hated good. the book that came with it. I, I don't know. know. This one is like it's a year old or like a yeah, year yeah, now. yeah. I thought there was like a lot of negativity around. Maybe it. I watched it, I, but that's not a reason for me not to watch them. They just yeah. slowed me down. I loved it. Okay, I, uh, and I and I don't particularly like the Catcher in the Rye. Uh, I actually don't. I'm not actually a huge Salinger fan, but the um, but the fucking documentary was amazing. It okay. really was. I uh, will go back. I'll go back. I actually, again, someone must have, I can be very easily, like, drop something. As soon yeah. as someone says something negative, I'm like, eh, all right. I got 50 fucking things to do. Yeah. I'll, that's now 51. <laughs> right. So were you writing in college, or were you just no. reading? Like, so here's no... the thing. I took that, I did that one story. It lingered. I took a journalism class. Yeah, so I thought I should check that out, because I really wasn't interested. In, I mean, yeah. it's kind of embarrassing, though it's not as bad as I felt 20 years ago. I mean, I literally had no interest in anything. I mean, I always used to joke around. My primary interests were sports. Yeah. I was a varsity athlete in high school. Um, I was interested in sports, trying to get laid, yeah. and drinking. I mean, those three things were much of what I did for my teen years till about 25 anyway. And so, you know, I thought, take a journalism class. Maybe that's what you'll be good at. And then I didn't enjoy it at all. I mean, yeah. I just didn't find it entertaining whatsoever. And if I'm not entertained, I drop things left yeah. and right. And it's fucking awful. And then I took, I will admit, and, and I will admit, I took a creative writing class, which I assume is probably a workshop model. And yeah. I, I don't know. I've never actually taken any writing classes. So I'm very dumb trying to be articulate. But I found it. I found the people in it so miserable. They were just fucking horrible. And yeah. I thought, if these are the people that take writing classes, yeah. I'm never. I mean, literally, there was a guy who, like, wore a beret, like, like right out of the coffee shop. <laughs> and there was this scary woman all in black. And I thought, I just hated it. Yeah. But I will say this. I will say this. Because I don't think I've ever had a chance to tell this story. There was one woman in the class who looked like she didn't belong there at all. Like, super hardcore Long Island. And that's not an anti-Long Island comment, but she didn't look like she belonged in that class. She didn't have a beret. Right, right, right. She's more like, you know, like now the people I know my wife grew up with. You know, she just, she was not angry or angsty. She was just very ballsy, but very quiet. But what's funny was she insisted on writing a nonfiction piece every week, which I thought was fascinating because, you know, she was the only one doing that. And uh, they were really brilliant. Like, with all these angry, artsy fucking kids in the class, she was, like, week after week nailing, like, the personal essay. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't clear it was even allowed, but she didn't care. <laughs> and years later, when I started trying to write, like, tr- like making it up, yeah. I remembered her and how well she wrote those essays. And at the beginning, when I was trying to get started, I would balance personal essays with fiction uh-huh. because the personal essays made more sense. Yeah. And then I dropped it. But it was actually one of the ways I taught myself how to write. Yeah. And I was inspired by her, even though I never even talked to her. It's really interesting because, um, so two things. So I, I used to sit in coffee shops and copy Fitzgerald. 
Like that was I would uh, people tell those stories. I love that. Yeah, it's it. Uh, so Gatsby is my catcher in the rye. I read it twice a year. I love it. I don't even care that it's like a kid's book, like whatever, or like, you know, young adult. It's just, I would, to get the sense of what it was like to write like that. Um, but I wish I wish I knew those tricks and I was trying to get started. I don't, like, I didn't know shit. Like, I was just some little fucking kid. Like, I, I just thought, like, that's what you should do. Like, I don't know why. There, there must be a- something in the writing gene because I, I can... I couldn't give you a list of people I know have said that, but yeah. I'm amazed how often I hear that. Yeah. It's when you don't have somebody there helping you write, like Fitzgerald became my mentor. But the other, I took a I took one writing uh, workshop class after I graduated, and I'm like, I want to be a writer. I should do this. Uh, and it was a creative writing class, fiction class, and I wrote I'm, – I'm fascinated by sort of taking a, a precept and then, like, switching it. So I wrote this – it's a love story. And then at the end, you find out it's uh, a rapist who's in jail. So the whole story you read, it's about, like, this relationship that didn't work out. And it's, like, heartbreaking, right? And then you find out, like, right? It's that, but that's the way he saw the thing. Right, right, and right. So, like, no, there was, so you read it, and then people are supposed to critique it. So I read it, and the teacher was like, okay, we're going to take a break. No critique. No, like, no critique. I went to the bathroom, and a guy came up next to me at the urinal and said, um... Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior in the bathroom? And I went in and packed up my shit and left. And I'm like, I clearly am not meant for writing group. And I should add, I should add that uh, I'm not anti it. Like some people are yeah. very much like MFAs are for losers and I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And that's bullshit. I mean, if I could go, I mean, I can list to you certain kinds of regrets. Yeah. And they're not really regrets, but I'm always very focused on at that stage what if I'd gone right and yeah, not yeah. left, right? Yeah. So one of the things I do think about, you know, is I didn't even know writing programs existed. Sure. It's like I was obsessed. Somewhere around 21, 22, I became obsessed with becoming a writer. And then I spent eight years not writing at all. <laughs> I finally started, like, right around my 30th birthday. But, you know, I was already through grad school. I'd yeah. gone to social work school here in Chicago. And, you know, I ask myself all the time what would have been like if I'd gone to an MFA program yeah. at that point. I mean, my career would be different, and I'd feel very blessed for my what I get to do by day most of the time. But, you know, it is very funny. Like, I don't feel like I, I everything's worked out because I didn't do that. Yeah. I feel like, God, how much different would it be? Would it be different? Do you have a writing group? No. Right? So, like, it is really – it's fascinating because that MFA – like, I don't really give a shit about the discussion because I feel like everybody gravitates to – like, I have a group of people who read my stuff. Like, that's my MFA. Like, I have writers who I like, who I know, who I know are good, who I work with. Um, and I, like, after that experience in the bathroom after my story, I Funny. thought, I just, there's not, like, if people, I'm not going to get a group that's helpful if I just show up and there are other random people that want to be writers. Right, right. right? You, need like, your, you need a community. Yeah, and, like, it's clearly that was not it. And, like, if I'm paying to be here... And I just took the class. It wasn't like I wasn't in a program. But I've always told my students, like, don't fucking go get an MFA. Like, j- write and go to the Green Mill and read your shit and listen to other writers. Yeah, and that's and, like, what I've done. I mean, that's been my – That's your MFA? That's been my path yeah. without consciously – I mean, I tell some of these stories. I always tell them together. I mean, I wanted to write. When I moved to Chicago, I was in social work school, and there was a part of me that thought – this isn't totally right, even though I love it. Yeah. And for a couple of years, I literally went to almost every reading I could. I was like a fucking vampire. And I kept thinking, I'm going to steal something from one of these writers. <laughs> like, I'm going to steal part of their soul or part of their brain, and that that's going to work. That's going right. to be part of this. So I went to writing. I mean, I went to readings 
Anytime my wife and I weren't doing something else, I was I probably went to dozens and dozens the first couple of years we were here. Any everybody, anybody writing in Chicago at the right. time, anybody who came through town, I would just show up. It didn't even matter if I knew who they were right. or I heard about the book. And uh, I really, like, made myself soak it all up because yeah. I thought that's something I have neglected to do. The second thing, you know, I had always – I mean, all these things are happening at the same time. Ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be friends with writers. Right. Not that I had any interest in writing at the beginning. I just wanted to be around them because I loved books so much. You know, like, I want to hang out with Jim Carroll right. or Essie Hinton or, you know, um, I don't know. The guy who wrote uh, The Chocolate War. I always pronounce his name wrong. Paul Cormier. Yeah. Whoever these people are. Yeah. I was like, I want to hang out with them. That's ridiculous. But what's funny, once I started writing, I realized that this MFA thing existed and that those people all knew each other. Right. So then I really consciously went out of my way to build a community. Yeah. And a lot of them are people who didn't go to programs because those people have each other. Right. So, you know, that's a huge help. And I still, still, like I'm 70, um, almost everything I write. Even though I don't have a writer's group, I have people I'll bounce it off of. Like mm-hmm. each book, I'll find someone slightly different yeah. who seems that seems to be their jam. I'll say, just give me some feedback. And then yeah. my mom and my wife, they're early readers. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, I let people read stuff, but and I'll say like, oh, tell me what you think. But most of the time, I don't give a shit. But like, it's just sort of perfunctory. If you give it to them, they want to tell you. Right. Um, but I, there's a very few people that read my stuff and who will tell me like, mm, like. Back, no, because they know the voice. They don't, they, they, and they know where I'm going with it, um, as opposed to like, oh, this is. Well, I see, I'm always interested in it's a lot like my work, they work. Like, I want to know where people get stuck, because if they get stuck, sure. I want to fix that, yeah. right? It's the stuck, I mean, I want it to be sticky in that they can't escape the story, but I want them to get stuck on something and then stop paying attention. Yeah. So that's what I'm very interested in. Someone's like, I love it, but the but is what I'm dying for. Yeah. And sometimes there is nothing. Or sometimes I don't agree, and that's you know that's up to me. But, <laughs> right. but it can be very helpful. Yeah, I mean, I guess from like regular human beings who read, like I am interested what bored them or whatever. But sometimes I, I just don't give a shit. I have a hard time working up the ability to give a shit um, if it's. I mean, we talked about this in in, in the podcast, your podcast. Uh, the machinery is what matters to me, right? Right. Like, are you? Am, am I, if the machinery is working in the way that I want it to, even if you don't get it, like, so it wired. Before I got there, um, used to do its graphic design. It was famous for its graphic design for making it really hard to read. And that was part of the aesthetic. It's just not for everybody. If you want to read it, you have to work your way you gotta through earn it. it. Um, and sometimes I'm writing stuff and I think, yeah, you know what? This is a part that you just got to fucking slog through the mud. And if you want to get to the next part, that's fine. If you want to stop. Well, I think that's fine. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, to me, the biggest goal, is that the right word, is... Uh, did I say what I was trying to say? Right. Even if it's not perfect. And it's funny. I don't know if you know this author, John Reed, who I also love. He's a New York guy. He once said to me, I don't know. I don't know if I got a bad review or we were just talking about bad reviews. But he said, if it's a bad review, meaning they don't like your book, but they don't like it for the reasons you were trying to write it, then you still win. Right. He goes, the thing you need to be worried about is when they don't like your book for things you weren't trying to do. Right. He goes, then you've done something wrong. Right. And so I've really held on to that, you know, which is, did I say it? Did I say it? Did I say it like I wanted to say it? Right. Even if it makes someone unhappy. Yeah. And you that's know. the thing, right? Like That's the machinery. Like, right. Am, right. I, am I getting this in the way that I want it? And I always tell my students, like, my job as a teacher is to help them write the book that they want. Right, not to write the book that I want, not to write the essays that I want, but you have to know what book, like right. figuring out what you want to say. It's I think that's harder as a younger person. As you get older, you sort of know like here's the 
Right. Well, it's funny. So, like, I always say, I feel like I'm talking about, well, I am talking about myself. That's the point of this. But, you know, with my book, Orphans, um, this novel that came out last fall, which is my first sort of effort to try to write a science fiction novel, I had this version at the end that involved sort of a shootout kind of thing, but not really a shootout. But, you know, like that kind of trope. It seemed appropriate. But then when I read it back, no one reacted to it. I thought, you know, that's not how I write. Like, it sounded like my voice. Yeah. It was the kind of dialogue I would write. But I thought, an explosive ending is not my thing. Yeah. I also thought it'd probably be better received or more popular with an explosive ending. But I cut it out. I yeah. re- I changed it. And I love the ending. But, you know, and, and sometimes people say to me, I really like it. I'm not sure about the ending. And I'm like, but they don't like it for the reasons I like it. So right. I'm okay. <laughs> but it was funny. A writer I really respect recently wrote a review of it. And he said... And it was just so funny because he and I didn't talk about the book at all. He said, "He said I know you're going to expect the ending to be like a big shootout because that's what these books do. Because that's not what Ben Tanger does. And it was really funny because he's read all my stuff. Right. And it's a writer I love. And I thought, you know, good. Okay. Right. Okay, good. Because that isn't what Ben Tanger which I'm talking in third right. person. But it, that's how I felt about the original ending. Yeah. Not, it's not what I do. Don't want to do. Don't yeah. want to do. Well, and uh, so Trey Dowell, who was at the volume two, uh, wrote the science fiction I don't even know what the fuck. I hate It's a superhero title. book, right? Yeah, kind but, of, but it's superhero like. Uh, but not to mislead. Like The Watchmen. Like, right, right. You know, it's like superhero in this that is way. The, the Protectors? Yeah. And. Uh, Great guy, by the way. Really like talking to him. Yeah, it was, he's marrying my best friend from college. The, I picked up on yeah, that. That's so, awesome. Uh, uh, yeah, she and I both were like, it was one of those, like, we were single forever and like, we're best friends, and like, every five years we'd be like, should we date? Like, no, nah, no. And then we both, like, within like a year and a half, like, found somebody. We're like, oh, yeah. That's how that shit works. Nicholas Sparks will tell you that. Yeah, right. Uh, so, um, you know, when I when I read his book, I told him, and I wrote this in, in the review, but I talked to him afterwards, and I was like, yeah, so, like, it is a book where the whole time it is told from the perspective of the heroes, very much like the Watchmen, and they're sort of talking about the the main narrator is sort of talking about the responsibility of having superpowers in a world for which people don't have. And the bad guys in the book are the, like the governments that are basically trying to stop them because they can do whatever they want. Right. And they keep saying, like, we don't know why they're trying to stop us, while they continue to do whatever they want. And it's so great because – at at the end of the, at the last battle, like the bad guys are really bad guys, but you kind of don't want them to lose because there are these fucking people that are just doing whatever they want to do because they think it's the right thing to do, which is what superheroes well, and that's do. That's what's great about you know the X Men movies. I mean, even the bad guys are still better than the government, right? And 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 in, in the protectors, what's it? The bad guys are the government, but right, you okay. understand, like, yeah fucking kind of want them to stop those people because at any moment that they're like we don't really agree with the way you're doing things that seems very superhero and it's great with superman stopping fucking you know uh the the other people from krypton but it's kind of bad when he's just like i don't like the vote you made and he can actually in essence do whatever he wants yeah yeah and so that was what i just thought the book was so interesting was about was because at the last battle i'm like i don't know who i want to win and that's a good conceit that's successful right that's good that's exactly what you want and uh and i told him like i want to find out i was like if the second book's not about the repercussions of that it's going to be a failure and he's like no that's exactly what it's about I'm like right then like, he's like that's then what you, it's about now yeah you've, you've done the exact thing like you right. set this up and said well what happens when now you fu- they took that uh, they i don't want to ruin the ending but like they fucking take out parts of governments and i'm like holy shit like and now it's the the, as they're doing it they're like oh fuck 
That's great. Yeah, like, I, we may have just become the bad guys. Um, but maybe not, right? Because what if it's the Iranian government? Like, well, maybe that's not bad that they took them out. But I kind of don't want to live in a world where, like, that's just happening. Right. <laughs> right? No, I mean a world where they can, again, people can do whatever they want. Yeah. It's the worst thing, right? The right. abuse of power. That's why Greatest American Hero was so great. Such a good, nobody. Don't fucking bastardize this talent, this gift that's fallen on you. Yeah. Use it for good. Yeah. There's a great episode where a guy comes up in a wheelchair and he's like, that happened to me too and I didn't use it for good. I was like, oh. <laughs> I was only like eight or nine, but man, that was it. That was locked in for that me. That was such that. a great TV show. I love that show. So uh, you you go to graduate school. You what time? When do you move to Chicago? Are you married then? I am married. No, but my girl, then girlfriend, and I we get engaged that summer, which is so funny because. I don't think I asked her because we were moving, but it seemed like a great time to do it. And then I asked her, and we'd already been together for several years. And she's like, wow, I didn't think you were ever going to ask. And I thought, I didn't have to? Yeah. I mean, she wasn't asking me to. Anyway, we get out here as an engaged couple. Um, 98. We'll be here. Okay. 98 doesn't sound right. No, no, not 98. 96. Uh-huh. So we are 20 years. We're coming uh-huh. up on finishing 20 years here. We got married two years later. So I finished grad school. We got married. I embarked on a career. And then this is a true story. Again, not interesting. Are they, are they all? They should all be true stories. Right, right. But this sounds both <laughs> fake and not that cool. But literally about a year into the marriage and a year into what's now a 20-year career, 18-year career, you know, I was like, everything was great. She's great. I love her. We've been married 18. You know, that thing was only a year. Work was going well. Like, I'd actually found the kind of thing I was trying to find. And I, and I honestly woke up, or maybe I just walked into something, and I thought, this is not enough. Like, this is not enough. You know, it's not, this is not going to work for the rest of my life. And I thought, I really got to start writing. Like, all of a sudden, it was so visceral. I thought, I honestly thought my head was going to fucking blow off. And I thought, I was probably 29. I thought, if I don't start writing by 30, you know, everything is fucked. Like, I really, all of a sudden, it was like really, really desperate. Because I basically pulled off all these things. The grad school, the marriage, living in Chicago. And I, it was all, I was just, it wasn't that I was unhappy. It was just like, wow, this yeah. is it. This blows. And then I wrote that, I mean, I will not bore you with the story of the first story, but I got that first story out and I have not stopped. And where, where did you publish it? Or did so, you just write it? I wrote it and it got picked up. Yeah. It took a couple of years to get picked up. You know, the funny part is when people are very successful, which I have not been, or they're successful very quickly, which is wild to me. It took me about... It took me several years to get it published, but basically that first story was almost the only thing I got published at least the first five years. I mean, I literally (laughs) was writing for four or five years until that story got published, Um, and then things slightly picked up steam, but I mean, I went, you know, several years, I mean, easily. Like lit journals and things like that? Every, yeah. Lit journals just rejecting every fucking (laughs) story. And one of the funny things is... The tide started to slightly change, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a call a callback. Is that the word? Yeah. I thought about that woman from college who'd written personal essays. I thought, maybe personal essays is more my thing because the fiction was not working. Right. So I started writing essays. They started getting picked up. And then that sort of inspired me. I don't know. I don't remember exactly. And then I started getting back to fiction again. Then I completely dropped personal essays for the most part until the recent book. And then I found my legs on fiction. But I went years. I mean, literally years. It was so desperate and yeah. horrible. What it was your, great. What did your wife say? Did she just, like, indulge the habit because it made you happy? Oh, yeah. But, again, you know, I should say I'm very careful, and I know it's connected to my dad in some fashion, of that habit, that writing thing crossing over. So even when we didn't have kids, I still wrote, like, not on our time, whatever yeah. that is. I would still write, like, during lunch at work right. or I'd get up at 5. But I didn't need to because 
we had almost no responsibility. Like, I felt like it had to be, and I've carried this over, and it's good because I told you earlier, I barely had started writing when we had our first kids. So I've always put writing on the fringe of the day. Yeah. Work comes first. Family comes first. The writing gets squished around the edges. Some yeah. days it's easier to squish around the edges. Some days I'm on a seven-hour flight for work, and I write for two hours on a plane. Yeah. That's, but it doesn't, it doesn't uh, encroach on anything but my time. Yeah. It's really interesting because it's different than the dream, right? Like, you just think, like, you're going to get up and drink coffee and ride in the morning. No. In fact, I was listening to Brett Easton uh, Ellis talk today, and, like, that's – he writes – He's hours. on the What the Fuck podcast, yeah, right? Today, yeah, I'm dying to listen to that one. It's really Well, good. is he interesting? Because I saw him one time live, and I thought, what why? a dick bag. And why is he so fucking boring? Yeah, yeah the that's books, what I mean. Yeah. The books are electric. I thought he's actually – when the day I saw him, he was traveling with a documentary about him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember thinking – and this is during that phase where I was consuming yeah. every writer I could. I remember thinking, he's not even trying. Fuck yeah. him. Like, I didn't think he was actually boring. I thought either it's an act, like he yeah. thinks he's supposed to sound like this, or he really doesn't give a fuck. But either way, I thought, dude, killing us. Yeah. Here, This is the inter- – so, not interesting, but, like, I, I had no idea he was gay. Oh, yeah. Huh. Like, it, like, he mentioned his partner and started talking about it, and I'm like, ah, shit. Like, I love that I live in a world of, like – that's not even a thing. Like, I realized it's still a thing in the world, but I was like, oh, shit. For whatever reason, I just thought he was like, he just seems like Patrick Bateman. Like, right. I just assume that he's like hyper Wall Street dude. I didn't spend well, a lot of funny. time knowing about I thought him. he was probably more like the characters in those earlier books. Uh, the, he was talking about Lesson Zero. Lesson that, Zero. That was his sort of experience. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, uh, that feels... And that's his second book, I think. Rules of Attraction, is that the first one? Yeah, but Rules of Attraction has is the Patrick Bateman's brother. Oh, yeah. It's the, it, okay. the the end of the book is he mentions his older brother Patrick Bateman. Who then okay. is in, I am not enough of an Ellis file, but those I I, I only know it because I think those two early it. books are really yeah. dynamic. I mean, if they're not great books, and they might be, I don't even know. Yeah. They're impossible to put down. Yeah, though they're uh, they, it was it was really interesting because you know Marin just never has rarely has just writers on. So it was I was interested. Uh, yeah, I'd like to do more of that because I'd love to hear his take. I mean, he's not going to read anything, so he's not going to have a ton of content. The only reason that he had him was because he had read all of his books. And That's he great. loved uh, he loved uh, the stuff. But it was just – it was interesting to hear. It was, when I was at Berkeley, uh, Remnick, David Remnick from The New Yorker came out, uh, and he was talking. He was like, yeah, sometimes we spend like a, you know, a year, 18 months on a story, and we all looked at him like, yeah, I wow. fucking spent so like – you were saying Brady Snell basically writes eight hours a day. Is that what you were yeah, starting with? yeah. And, like, Rednick was talking about, that. like, yeah. having 18 months to work on a magazine. Well, you know, and it's I'm tricky because like, I rarely have deadlines because right. I basically try to write novels. Yeah. You know, which sounds so fucking pretentious. But, you know, that's my right. main interest, though I do everything or anything I get my hands on. Yeah. So since no one ever is really waiting, I have no deadlines. I mean, I spend several – it seems hard to believe because I've had some recent success getting stuff yeah. out. But every book is a several-year project. Yeah. I don't know what I would do if someone said, yeah, we want your next book. We want it in nine months. Yeah. I know I could do that. But no one's ever – I've never needed to. Yeah. You know, I've never – so, yeah, I take forever. But I rarely write more than 30 minutes a day. Really? It's almost – I feel like it's almost impossible. That I can get away with. Wow. And some days I go longer. And some days I'll find a way to get 30 more minutes in later in the day. Yeah. Like, I'll schedule it in. But my goal has always been kind of like with running. Make sure you try every day. So you write every day? Every day. Which means I also miss days. I don't want to be a total day. Yeah, right, right. But, yeah, my yeah. goal is seven days a week, year-round. Yeah. And then once in a while, I'll take a break because, you know, for whatever reason. Like, last fall. You need, like, a week or two just to, I mean. Recharge, Like, yeah. if you're running, they tell you. Like, every season, you should take two weeks off to let really, the body recover. Really hard. I'm really hard to do that. Yeah. Because I'm bouncing off the walls. Yeah. But I had this weird phase 
So it's November 2014. So maybe a year ago, though maybe 18 months ago, I was in a particularly manic, well, it felt like a manic phase near the end of it. I'm not that, I mean, I probably have a low-level mania all the time, but <laughs> but I was cranking things out, like yeah. cranking all the edits on Orphans, the entire manuscript for Lost in Space, a whole other flash fiction collection, you know, things people asked me to work on. Yeah. So, But I was just like going, 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 and really productive, like really productive, and still going to work and doing all the things I do, but... And it was all, it all felt good. Like, it all felt like these were good things. Like, yeah. I was nailing it. That's what it felt like. And what was funny, though, was I got into this stretch where I felt like literally everything I was experiencing felt like material. Right. Like, I wasn't even having a normal day. Right. Every conversation, every fight, every whatever. <laughs> and that made me feel very anxious. Yeah. And so I actually shut, shut down for a month. Because I thought, I got to get out of the mode where everything's material. That's yeah. what made me nervous. Yeah. Well, yeah. I have told people that I live my life like a book. Like I, when, whenever things start, I'm like, oh, this is the beginning of Act Two. Or like when a thing ends, I'm like, oh, this is the end of this chapter, and I'll never see this again. Like I very much experience my life in terms of what, like, so I call it the living memoir, right? Yeah, well, you're, I, well, you're a machinery guy, right? Right. I'm the opposite, right? But, I am the. I'm just like absorb, 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 eat, consume, curious, do it, do it, do it, whatever it is, do it, do it, do it. But when you were beginning to feel the machinery, you had to like. Like when you, when I felt like I wasn't clearly operating in yeah. the, the zone of reality. Yeah. You know, that since everything felt like it was a possibility, it made me uncomfortable, even though I was producing stuff. And, and this is so dick, I mean, they turned out like I wanted them to. Right. You know, Orphan's got a great response. Lost in Space has gotten a different response, but still very positive. So, and people feel them. They seem yeah. to feel the material. So I know I captured that real-time fucking mania I was in the middle of. Yeah. But it just seemed off. Something well, seemed wrong. But like what? Like what about, like what was it that felt I guess wrong? the most primary thing I say is I felt like I couldn't turn off that everything felt like it should be written down and figured out on paper because uh -huh. it was going to be something great, a short story, an uh -huh. essay, the next novel. I feel like I had to sort of, uh, you know, pull the rug out from under my feet. And one of the things is, you know, I'm not a writer consciously who waits for inspiration. And right. I don't, this isn't a judgment on that. From the start, I thought, don't be precious. Be like, be an athlete, <laughs> be blue collar. You know, every day you write, no matter what the mood is. So sometimes I'll write because something hits me and I'm on the train, you know, like, but really, it's just every day is a scheduled experience. Yeah. And, you know, so I felt like I couldn't stop it. And I just thought maybe I need to stop it. I don't know why. But I can't say that was good or bad. I'm yeah. just saying it didn't feel normal. Yeah. And I wanted to feel a little more normal. And so I just took a break. That's, in that's interesting because that, to me, feels the most normal. Like, when I, that's when I feel like I'm... Well, I think most... Certainly most obsessive writers, which are a lot, and yeah. pro productive. I mean, prolific isn't the word. Not productive. Everyone's productive. The most prolific writers probably feel like that all the time. Yeah. And I was on a great stretch. Oh, and I knocked out the draft of another book. Yeah. You know? But I don't know. Maybe I don't want to – I don't know. Maybe I just don't want to feel quite like that. <laughs> right. Because it's not – but I don't even know why. Like, all I'm not actually being helpful because I don't right. have any good responses. And you have a... And nothing bad was happening. Like, there was a, no downside. You have a psychology background. You should totally have delved into And a therapist why. mom. I tried. <laughs> I tried. I couldn't tease it out. It just felt unhealthy. Yeah. Do, do you know what, what was it about it that felt like where you just, like... Do you feel like you weren't paying attention to people? Like, it, it all became filtered through you instead of filtered through... No, because I'm good at paying attention to people. I don't know. I just felt like the wheels were turning so fast all the time. Yeah. I just, wanted, that, just, going, I just wanted the engine to slow down. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted the engine to slow down. 
And again, it wasn't affecting the writing. It wasn't affecting work. It wasn't affecting my kids. And it wasn't affecting my generally good listening skills, which are probably only good because at work, my job is all about listening. Yeah. No, nothing. There was no downside. It just seemed off. Yeah. It just seemed off, That's man. That's really interesting because I um, – yeah, I if I am not feeling like, and I don't, I'm not particularly, I'm I'm bad at finishing. Like it takes me forever to finish stuff because I try to, like all the stuff is happening. Right. I have copious fucking notes. Like I'm turning into that crazy writer where I'm like, there's too much. I feel like Donald Sutherland in Animal House. Like he's been working on it for eight years and it's a piece of shit. It's a potential trap. Uh, yeah, finishing is a big thing. You know, I, I talk about this a lot among these sort of writer friends I have. But it's like you know, if you can't finish, you can't publish. Right. And if you can't finish, you can't, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I was a high school wrestler, among other sports, and I was actually very bad at finishing. I was great at hurting people, and I was great at leading matches, um, and I was great at not, you know, not falling for the other guy's bullshit. You know, you think you want to body slam me? I'm literally going to break your arm. You know, <laughs> all legal. But, I mean, just like none of that stuff worked. But I also couldn't finish. I could never pin guys. Yeah. Could never do. I could never figure out the mechanics of how to win. Yeah. All I could figure out the mechanics was, was being better than you. Yeah. But that is actually not a way to be an athlete in any sport. Right. If you can't get to the end zone, it doesn't matter how well you run. <laughs> right. You know. And so with writing, I've tried to be the opposite. It's like yeah. you must finish. If you don't finish, then you're just writing all the time, which yeah. nothing's wrong with that. But then there's a difference between wanting to be a writer and being someone who writes. Yeah. yeah. To me, I want it out there. Yeah. I really, you know, and so it's interesting. I think the finishing thing is a big deal. I have a lot of friends who I think are unbelievable writers, and you, me, we may never see their novel. Right. We may never see their collection of essays because they don't feel like they know how to, they don't want to, they can't, they don't know how, whatever the word is. Yeah. And it drives me crazy. And that's when I'm at my worst as a friend because I'm like, fucking finish that. Right. People right. don't like that. It's funny. I have a, um, this summer run thing that I'm working on when I was r- running across the country, like my little Forrest Gumpy stuff. When I blog, like, I don't blog like regular people blog. Like, my blogs are never like, oh, here's what I did today. Like, they'll be 3,000 word. Again, this is this chapter. And I'm going to – these are my notes, and I need to write them. So when I sat down to – I'm doing a reading on the first, and I agreed to do it. And I'm like, fuck, I haven't, I haven't finished anything, so I need to go through. So I pulled all these posts together that are sort of my notes. I have a 100-page book. Right, I haven't sat down to write anything. It's just like the way that I – and they are in the orders of the chapter. Like I was working the chapters out as I was running. That was part of what that was, was um, this sort of narrative thing. And so that's the, to me that's the hard part about finishing is that I then need to sort of put it aside. And now I have to re-experience it three years later. And like, okay, because otherwise it's just that moment and not the story that I want to tell. So now I have to go back through it and sift through it and go, what the fuck was I talking about? And I got to read it again and see where it all fits, right? Yeah. Because it still makes sense. Is yeah. It, are there the connections you want? And the connections are there, at least as I've read them. But it's uh, like my wife doesn't tell stories. She tells series of events that happen in a row. There you <laughs> but go. But there's no like beginning, right. middle, and end. And she gets done. She's like, I don't think that had an end. I'm like, no, I didn't have a start either. And I had a middle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Long. And that's sort of what I look at with that stuff is that there's this long middle but it uh, and it's interesting to me i don't know of course it's interesting to other people that read it on the blog but it's not a story right well you don't have a framework to it yet right and you don't have uh there's no over probably there isn't that overarching framework that says we start here we finish there right so we for me one of the things i mean no one ever asked me advice on writing but one of the things i always say in my head is (laughs) before i start i always have a and z in my head Really? Yeah, always. I always know what the first scene and the last scene are going to be on some level. And that may change. But 
I'm always working towards Z, and I don't necessarily map anything out. Now, lately, during that manic phase, when I decided not to be manic, for that month, I actually sketched out a book, which I'd never done before, because I wanted to use the energy. I just wanted to be less of a freak or feel like less of a freak. But um, it was the first time I outlined a book. And so now I'm really into that. I haven't needed to use it yet. But now I'm like, wow, that's an actual thing. What does your outline look like? I have note cards on a wall. So I have note cards in like a steno. What are those things called? Like the books that kids use in yeah. school. I've mapped it out just like a series, like an outline over a series of pages, but I use post-its so I can move them around. Right. It'd be better on a wall if I had an office. But yeah. what's funny is I was telling another friend of this, when I started writing again, um, the next book, which now I've put aside briefly, I had a whole outline, which I'd never had before. You know, so I spent a month just outlining, yeah. well, two books. And uh, I knocked off 100 pages, like, typing it up, like, almost immediately. And I thought, fuck, an outline's going to make me more manic. And, I mean, again, good manic. Yeah. Like, I never had a pause. So I thought, well, there it is. It's yeah. just waiting. Just fill it in, man. It's kind of cr- a very interesting experience. My outlines fall apart. They give me good beginnings and ends. But even the nonfiction stuff I do, like, suddenly I find... I become more interested in certain characters. But that's okay, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah it's no, a launching that's point. That's okay. Yeah. I've been working on a new book, um, which I didn't think would have a love story theme because I don't consciously think about love stories. Yeah. I had a whole series of ideas and an A and a Z. First scene, last scene. I knew what they were going to be, more or less. Um, but I did have a secondary character that the protagonist was going to interact with. And as I was writing their scenes together, this is the book I didn't outline. I just wrote it start to finish. <laughs> right. You know, I started thinking... That'd be so much more interesting if they have an uncomfortable sort of they want to get together, but yeah. they're both not used. You know, they're it's a teen, they're teenagers. I right. thought it's not even that they're particularly weird. They just haven't had a chance to be. What does that look like? Right. I thought, God, that's just as interesting to me. Yeah. yeah. I've never written anything quite like that, so I thought I'm going to run with that. But that wasn't in my head. Yeah. But it I seemed ho- natural. I hope not. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> but you know, it is very yeah. Well, you know, I also do a lot of facilitation for my day job. Right. And you know, I put together kick-ass agendas they're all annotated and shit you know i'm in charge and then i always think if you have to abandon it along the way then you abandon it like i think you have an obligation to build something i know you love the machinery you build the machinery but if you have to blow it up you blow it up yeah and i'm so obsessive about things that i will find my i I will get obsessed about the uh, note cards so eventually i just have to fucking get rid of them and say it's i've thought it through and now i'm going to sit down and now i have to write it because if i stick to there the writing becomes mechanical. You get stuck on them. Oh yeah. yeah. Like, well, like I do, like copious notes, like on a plane. Like if I'm flying to speak at a conference, yeah. I'll write copious notes on the plane on every slide, bullets, and it's all freehand. It's not for the audience. And then every time I get there, I put those notes down, and right. I never look at them again. Right. Ever. But it's how you process. But it's what how I say. get the rhythm in my head. Yeah. yeah. And and to me, that's that what I'm learning as I get older and write. Because I've been fucking writing since professionally since I was. 21? I mean, I've been getting paid to do that for... Uh, I am definitely envious of that. Well, I mean, I teach, so, like, that right. That makes that happen, but, like, I still have been... No, but you got that start. Yeah, but the voice, to me, it was um, it was always for other people. What, what I, one of the things that I have told folks is that the great thing about the modern publishing world is that you can carve out your own space because my voice got lost in... Journalism and Wired and Kanye Man, all that stuff. And when I sent out my proposal, which so I raised money on Kickstarter for my second book, and my old editor, who now is an outside, is going to edit it. I sent in the proposal because I wanted to go through the process. And he's like, "I need to read Drunk Brad." 
this reads like academic Brad. Like, nobody fucking wants to read that. Like, you're not an academic. You teach, but you're a fucking dickhead. Like, write drunk Brad. And it's really hard to suss that out when you're outlining. And when you're sober. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually, as it turns out, I'm an asshole either way. So, well, that's that's good. so really, yeah. what he shouldn't have said is drunk Brad, yeah. asshole Brad. Yeah, that was shorthand. Right. Not the, okay, well, that's yeah. Health, right. So, yeah. Not refined teacher no. Brad, the asshole version yeah. I like. But it's too too much of the outlining is, it's, that is that right. that mechanism that I was well, again, told to do, right? You can't, like, you can't, it can't dictate. Yeah. It's got to open. I mean, I'd love to be able to say this more articulately. It should be a springboard to something. It yeah. can't be the. It can't be the something. Right. You know. But even you don't. I mean, you don't outline. I mean, you just said you just discovered it. You, so you did, like when you did Lost in Space, you just sat down and wrote. I These sat, are essays, yeah. right? But I sat down and I thought, what would be a full, what would a full collection look like? I'd never really written essays except for this smaller thing, Ninety Nine Problems, yeah, um, which are running and writing essays, but. Uh, and I hadn't written much about being a parent, just on occasion, like a blog for someone. So I sat down and I thought, what would a full collection look like? I thought, 20 solid essays sounds like a good starting point. <laughs> so then, over the next month, while I was writing or running or people would ask me to do things, I would say, could that be an essay? <laughs> and so I made a list of 20 ideas. And then for the next six months, I worked on those 20 essays. Yeah. And sometimes I was pulling some material from a blog post I wrote for someone. Right. Sometimes somebody, like a guy, uh, a magazine called me and said... You live in Chicago. People are getting shot there. Could you write something about that? And I thought, no. No, it was nice. It was just funny. Right. Like, we want to do something about violence, right. and you're in the most violent place in the country right now. When it was on the news, it's probably after the Yeah, yeah. And, and I thought, that's not interesting to me. Right. But, but if I could write about trying to explain to my kids why Newtown is horrible but shouldn't doesn't affect them, yeah. That would be okay. And I wrote back and said, can I write about trying to explain to my kids gun violence? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't care what you write about. We found something on violence. <laughs> and all of a sudden, that became one of those 20. Yeah. So, yeah, I just mapped it out, and then I just wrote them out. Yeah. But you weren't like, it was it? did you have, um, thematically, you weren't trying to say anything. Like, you didn't no. sit down and go, this is the moment where I'm going to, like, explain death. Or no. Whatever. It was just. No. I just wanted 20 ideas. 20 ideas to run with. And um, But then I started building in rules, which I've never done before. You know, so for example, I thought every essay could technically be about letting go of your kid. Right. And I thought, okay, you can't fucking do that. Right. So I had to consciously think, what's the other ending? Or what's another direction? That was one rule. Another rule was none of my kids' secrets can be in these essays. Sure. You know, I can make fun of them and we'll have to work that out in therapy. Right. But they can't feel like I've exposed them. No peeing in the bed stuff. Right, 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 right. Nothing embarrassing them was okay, I thought, but not exposing like secrets. Secrets are a big deal of both of them. So I started coming up with those rules and then that got filtered into the essay. The other thing which I've never done before was I was very conscious about it's gotta be it's gotta be sad and funny. Mm -hmm. The whole time, start to finish. So I literally went back, part of the editing process was is this too funny or too, too funny. sad? Is there too much of one or the other? Yeah. And I meant literally sentence to sentence, paragraph to paragraph. I yeah. really tried to think about what would that balance look like if you could understand it. And it's funny is in my novels, I never try to be either. Yeah. But I, the reaction I tend to get is really funny and really fucking sad. The la- and I get that anyway. The last essay is lo- that's the it's lost in space. Yeah. That's no. That's is in oh, one of the is, essays. Uh, uh, or this is the end. The end. The very last essay is about getting a vasectomy that I never get. Oh, I thought- the essay I you wrote is actually for my next book, but it's inspired by Lost in Space. End of story. 
Oh, I thought that was in Lost in Space. No, no. What happened was a journal contacted me and said, we really want to give the book some exposure, oh. but we'd like you to write something inspired by your own book, which is funny, a level of self-absorption right. for me. I mean, they were just like... Come up with something else. But you had written about your father. Yes. Oh, he's a character. And you had written about the, your son's... Yes. Uh, yes and yes. Yeah, but it wasn't the... No, I'm, I'm sort of working it out of my head. You had written about your father passing away in the book, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was the other thing I was conscious so about. Th- I think that was why... Right, and I that sort of, worked its way into that essay yeah. as well. Yeah, and I wanted the dichotomy of how do you become a dad when your dad is dead and you yeah. don't... And not like you don't get any guidance from him, though right. that came up. It was more just like, what does it mean? What does it mean to not have a father and yeah. become a father? Yeah. I just didn't – I wanted to make sure that was a thread. I thought, even if I don't know what that means, it's important. Yeah. No, that was – And the, then life and death. I mean, you know, birth, doors opening, doors closing, all right. that bullshit. People like that. Yeah. It, it is interesting. It, they like it, but it was also fucking real. Like, again, like I look at the machinery, and um, those were the moments in that book that I – that I was like, ah, oh, fuck, yeah, like, that was... Because that's the thing, right? Like, that's, that is the thing that everybody deals with. My dad is my best friend, and I have told people for years, the two things that I'm most afraid about the day he dies is I won't know what to fucking do, and I don't know if I'm going to be sober. Like, right. like, those, like Dude, it's, it's, because I talk to him every day. Like, what, like... See, we didn't have that kind of... Though we were close, yeah. but... Uh, Oh, dude, it's fucking terrible. I think about him all the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And I'm not even someone who, you know, I have friends. They still have, like, lunch with their parents every weekend. Yeah. I haven't lived near my family in years. Though, not any particular desire not to be near them. Right. Just wanting to do other things that happen away. Right. But, uh, you know, he's not here. I mean, he's not going to meet my kids. Yeah. He barely knew me as a writer. I, how's that possible? Yeah. He knows me as a runner and a high school wrestler better than he knows me as, a, as anything else, as yeah. an adult. That's crazy. I mean, it seems crazy. And it's, um, and I think I said it at the jam, and it's, you don't know this, but it's a big part of the, my life outside of here is that we don't talk a lot about being a man in fatherhood. Like, it's right. just not a, and I don't mean like, um, oh God, you know, men don't, don't get credit for being dead. I just mean like men as men talking about what the fuck does it mean to be a father? And what does it mean to sort of, because we live in a, everything's changing, right? Like the rules that we were taught are, don't apply now. And you have to be careful that you don't, anytime I see like old white guys saying shit in public, I'm like, oh, this could go either way, right? Like I'm not really sure if this I is going to be I think Dan Handler will back you on that. It's just the guy who just did the fucking well, watermelon thing. Asshole. Yeah. Right, like that, that to me is beyond like, you should that you should know better, right? Like there's just some it's shit. It's so completely senseless, but it shouldn't go away either. Like he should not be given a break. No, no, because how can you even think the fact that you even think that that's okay, right? It's so a, bizarre to me. Like I don't even understand that. I mean, yeah. we can't even discuss it because I actually don't understand it. Right. But it is. Yeah. But right. But, but that's the point, right? right. Like we, there isn't there aren't these forums where we sit down and go like, what the fuck does it mean to be a man? Like how like how do you and not even like how do you deal with the changing world like. You got to be actively a part of the changing world. You can't just say like, "Ah, we fucked up." Like, okay, like I guess you get to you women get to work and you people like we got to go in and and be contributing members in safe sort of ways. And so I loved Lost in Space because it felt like that book. I'm glad. It I mean, felt like modern dad. Good, good. But, I mean, but not like that bullshit hipster modern dad. Like, I'm a man and I'm trying to figure this shit out. Good. I mean, that was that was probably the least conscious part of the things I was conscious about, yeah. but it was definitely on my mind, you know, which is meaning I wanted it to sound like how I feel about it, right? right. Not about commenting on what it looks like. No, absolutely. And it wasn't, a, it's not an instruction manual for right, men right. to be a dad. And it's funny because several of the reviews have been like, 
this feels like an instruction manual that actually isn't, or it isn't one that you could think of. Like, it's always a positive reaction. It's right. like, wow, this is not an instruction manual, but it definitely gives you a roadmap. And it's, you know, I have told... Which is funny, because that wasn't part of it either for me. No, and I, I never thought about that as I read it. Like, I have told my... In, in academia, I'm surrounded by... I mean, I have been surrounded by strong women most of my life, which has um, been a really good thing. But part of my confusion about discussions about the world is like, I'm like, that's not the way my guy friends operate. Even the ones who are from my town, from Appalachia, who you wouldn't think, like, they were just not raised in that... They would never raise a hand. Like, they just, they're not those kinds of people. And that was why I liked the book was because it was that conversation. It wasn't a do this. It wasn't a, isn't it funny how the world is changing? It's like, this is how I fucking raise my kids. Right. And, and I, I tried it, you know, and again, I'm really taken with real time. Yeah. So this is how I do it because I'm literally trying to give you a transcription. Right. Which isn't based on a transcription. But it gives you that, um, it, 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 it's modeling, right? Like it gives you that, and not that I even think literature should be that way, but it's nonfiction. So in some ways it is like, it is a model. It is like, it's okay for you to raise your kids like that because I do. Like, it's okay to be the parent that talks with them about this stuff. Like, Guys aren't generally, you weren't, at least, you know, weren't raised like, well, you go have that conversation with your kid. Like, my dad has told me he's loved me from the time I was, you know, hugs, right, kisses. Right, right. Like, that is a thing that's built into my... And it's very funny because I thought, you know, the goal, I suppose, is to capture what's real and hope it's got a sense of this is what the world looks like. Right. And maybe... And simultaneously, maybe there's a lot to ask for. Somewhat timeless, right? Because, yeah. you know, and so... That I'm conscious about. But the most thing I'm conscious about is this is what it looks like to me. I hope that appeals to you, but I still have to write it like this. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it gives people space to go, yeah, yeah, that's exactly how it should be. Like, And, you know, the other thing I thought was say all of it. Like, say it. You know, death really sucks. Right. And I'm fucking terrified that one of my kids get leukemia like my dad. Right. And, yes, it's true. I was never, you know, people tell me how they're worried if their kids will be attractive. You know what? My wife's really attractive. That was never a fear, right? But am I scared that they may get shot in a bar? Absolutely. All the fucking time am I terrified of that. Right. You know, did when my dad died, did I run away from my wife? Absolutely. Did I run away because I don't want to be with her? Not at all. Yeah. I wanted to feel something. And I wanted to feel it with her. And she's like, you know, you got to go on your own. Yeah. I don't need it. Yeah. And that was fine, too. And she gave me the permission. So, yeah, I literally ran away. It's funny. You know? uh, on my wedding ring, it, 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 it's inscribed ours. And in, in the program, um, there's a saying, yours, mine, and ours. And any fucking time you have a fight with somebody, you have to ask. If it's your problem, I can't fix it. Right. If it's my problem, you can't fix it. And if it's our problem, we got to figure it out. And so on our wedding rings, we got inscribed ours. And any time my wife and I have some kind of disagreement, the first thing we say is, is this yours, mine, or ours? Right? And it is the most – so if I have to go away or whatever, like there's a language for us to say, right. like, I'll be back. This isn't you or whatever. Um, and that's so fucking powerful. It's like I got to fix my shit. Yeah. And, I got yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, and you know, and it's funny because I don't think, um, I want to say this well, you know, I'm very typical male in some ways. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm really happy to be the breadwinner. I'd be really happy not to be. Like, I can go either way. I tell my wife But, but, but yeah. you know, in the last couple of years, I've been really put in that position. And there is a sort of, I've embraced the male part of that. Right. It's like, right now, that's what we need. And uh, awesome. Right. Yeah, that's a guy. It's kind of a guy thing and kind of a power thing. You know, um, 
I'm pretty mellow, but, you know, I don't know who I was talking with the other day. It was about, we were talking about fighting, you know. I mean, I fought a lot, like, as a kid, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. a lot. Yeah. And I looked for it. And, you know, it was, like, two types of things. I hung out with rough kids. Right. So fights happened. But because I'm also my parents' kid, I always fought bullies because I hated watching bullies bullying other people. Yeah. And I would use that as an excuse to get in fights. Yeah. You know, now, of course, I don't fight, obviously, and I don't want to. And I'm not the lower that big. Back and it but it's very tricky to me because even to this day, and I'm old and weak and I've never been big anyway, you know, there's not a moment I think in my head where I don't think I would fight anybody. Like, I wouldn't be scared of fighting anybody. Right. I never was and I never will be. Right. You know, I mean, if someone started in a bar, which happens once in a while, or something happens, there is a moment where I think, oh, I guess if we have to fight, we have yeah, to fight. Like, exactly. I, would, I would never yeah. think that guy's too big or too young. Yeah. No, no. You know? I, and I haven't quite let go of that, and it's sort of an embarrassing trait. I don't think anyone thinks that's cool, right? But I wouldn't also not say it out loud. They don't think it's cool until something fucking happens, right? right? Like that's right. what I tell my wife. I'm like, I, you know, I can't. I don't even know if I'd win. Right. But if somebody came and fucking did something to you, I wouldn't ask them oh, if yeah. we were going to fight. There would be a fight happening, right. Right. and then and that I haven't really been able to give up. You know, right. on the other hand, which I hope to cover when well, I... We just stay home a lot. <laughs> right, right. Staying home. Yeah. But, you know, I'm hoping to cover some of this what will hopefully be the next essay collection. But, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I was assaulted in New York City. Um, no chance to defend myself. No chance really to get out of it. Yeah. And then no chance to get any sort of payback. You know, it was really quick. It was on the street. It was over. I was really fucked up. And, you know... It's funny because even as I tell you about the fighting stuff, it's also mixed with a level of trauma. I mean, meaning yeah. up until then, if I heard a loud noise, I might not have reacted. Yeah. Now, 20 years later, if I'm out at night by myself and there's a loud noise, I mean, I am fucking in flight Heightened. or fight mode. Yeah. And, you know, so that gets mixed up in the two. And, you know, that fight, it wasn't a fight, right? It was an assault. Yeah. Um, definitely made me feel less less manly. Yeah. And I remember I was holding sure. a bar maybe a week later with some fucking tool I went to high school with. And he asked me what happened. And, you know, I, I didn't want to run from it. I told him what happened. He's like, that would have never happened to me. And I would have beat the, the shit out of that you guy. You want to fucking kick his ass. And I thought, now I want to beat the shit out of you. Like, yeah. you know, it's funny. I thought, yeah. you think you would have handled yourself better in that situation? Yeah. You have never left our hometown? Right. I mean, I didn't want it. It's not a badge of honor for me, but right. I was like, I'm going to punch you in the fucking face. Yeah. That was terrible. I'm yeah, terrible. It is. But it, and we were we were talking about, like, I fought, uh, I got my ass kicked in my neighborhood a lot as a kid. I was a mouthy, skinny kid. So when I got older, in my 20s, I, I had to go, I had to figure it out, right? I had to figure out, like, I need to fucking find out why I can't, I got to feel like I can protect myself. And right. so I... And I, it was like pack, like a little pack of guys that I ran around with in San Francisco. We would actively go out and look for fights in our fucking twenties. Like we were professionals then. Uh, I mean, like both professionals in that we had jobs, but also in like we were uh, tonight we're drinking and fighting. I look back on that and I'm like, what the? Yeah, I'm always fat. I know a lot of guys like you. I never had that either, it's but crazy. I know what it's like. Yeah, but it's proved. I mean. You don't need to defend it, but you're trying to prove something to yourself. I was absolutely right. I mean, I was absolutely, and that's how damaged men. That's one of the ways we prove things to ourselves. Yeah, right? and it's but that's why I think that it's so fascinating to read. Um, I don't, I don't even know the label for it, but just like books like uh, yours, because again, as it it gives you that space to say, there's these other ways. Like you can be it. Ultimately, what I was trying to do at that point was to get to a point where I had a family for which. You know, my wife and I, 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 I'm the primary breadwinner, but she, she, you know, um, 
her job, she keeps getting promoted. It's going to be very shortly before she surpasses me. But, like, I have a home and it's safe. That was right. what I wanted. It wasn't this other bullshit. And I just right. didn't know how to get to there. And I thought, well, I guess you just learn how to kick people's ass and then nobody ever fucks with you. Right. Instead of, like, no, 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 that, that is our way. Right? It's something. Yeah, it's not really the best way or even no. any way. And so having these kinds of stories, whether they're fucking set out to be that way or not, is I just I I think that there's not enough of this and there's lots of people telling men how to be men. Right. And there's not enough of us sitting down and going, Okay, that's great. We have to listen to that. What the fuck does that mean? And like how do we navigate these in space? It's very funny because you know, I'm not overly confident. I'm not not confident. I'm somewhere in the middle. Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I don't consider myself successful, which bothers me sometimes. Yeah. And always. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't bother me. But, you know, one thing I never question um, is, is this the way to be a man? I mean, to be sensitive, to not raise your hands to your kids, right. to go to work every day and make sure my family has health insurance. Like, right. that's a version of it. But that is definitely my version, which is things are stable and people are taken care of. And I will do what that takes you yeah know, i'll do what that takes and uh that's not very cool um which i'm very self-conscious except of. for that that's that's the point right that's the problem is that we don't actually put that out as the thing because... that's exactly right 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 and you know all the little things right like you talk about talking to my kids like they're little but you know and especially lately i feel like this like sometimes sex comes up as a joke yeah and sometimes you have to have a real sex talk <laughs> right. but one of the messages i've been saying which no one ever said to me and i'm glad that i hope they didn't have to i always say to them I know you don't know what this means yet, but no is no is no is no, period. Right. Someone says no, you get the fuck out of the room. Right. And I, I want to start saying that now, even though they can't conceive of what right. that means. Because I feel like, God, if I don't say that, who's going to say it to them? Right. I right. can't trust someone else to be a male or a female, but certainly a male presence, and be like, when someone says no, whether you're with a boy or a girl, wherever right. you end up, right. someone's going to say no, and you've got to be fucking cool about it, Yeah, no matter what. It's uh, it's funny. I just sat through a meeting the other day, and part of it, uh, so having come from Berkeley, they just passed the yes means yes, right. right? Which I actually think is a much more, I was so, I was like, yeah, no, that's exactly, because other, no means no means that yes is implied. And I have to tell right, you, right. I'm not being very nuanced. I may even be very retro in what I'm saying. No, no, I, but I totally get it. But this is like the new thing, and I was right. like, oh, that totally fucking makes. And sense they're growing to me. up in a different world, right. you know. And yet, there's still a lot of violence against women, and there's a lot of sexual assault. And even with the world's different, I think what's mainly changing is the language. Yeah, there's yeah. a great quote today, might even out of the New Yorker, and somebody was saying they're talking about the Bill Cosby story yeah, in particular. <laughs> but you know, they were saying, uh, well, look at this. It took a man to get people to pay attention. Because Hannibal Burris right. sort of triggered all of it, this recent wave. But what this woman wrote, which I fucking loved, she wrote, it didn't take a man. A man, this man is a product of a universe where women are no longer saying, I'm going to keep it a secret. Right. And I'm no longer, you know, going to say that's okay or that's how it works or right. that's what guys are like. He's able to be empowered. It's probably not the word anybody uses in 2014. <laughs> because he lives in a world where it's bullshit. Right. And I fucking love that. I mean, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I don't love all the rest of it. Right. But I like the idea that words have that much power. Well, and that was why the yes, the yes I like because the implicit thing in yes is that, okay, you have to start with no. You don't get to do anything right. unless somebody invites you in, right? And I, I was telling my um, students the other day, like, the Ferguson shit is driving me crazy because this isn't a, a black problem. This is actually a fucking white problem. It's this culture for which we have set things up in a way that people are silenced. 
And so the outrage from the other side, that makes total sense to me. But there's no amount of outrage coming towards that white community that's going to change that. It needs to be a bunch of people who fucking were complicit in setting that up going, this is fucked up. This is fucked up. We, this is we... Maybe we didn't create this. Maybe we did, but we've certainly benefited from this. And now it's our time to. We really need to fix it. We need to fix it, and and we have to go to them. It's not fair to say, "Well, come over here." Like, you don't get to be the aggressor and then fucking dictate the terms of fixing things, right? This great story I tell very poorly. A guy I do some work with, and it's an Australian phrase, and it's about anthropologists showing up at a tribe in Australia. And they're here like, we're here to help or something. And the person who greets them is like, if you're here to help, go the fuck home. But if you're here to join us on our journey, you're welcome. Right. You know? Right. Very moving. I yeah. Mean, it's probably very cliche, but God, I love it. But it's true. Like, it's, uh, um, yeah. But it's, I backed this documentary on um, Kickstarter by some Berkeley folks called Framed. And it is about the ways in which Africa is framed in the uh, context of uh, people going over to help, right? It's, it's, all, it's all that, right? Like, um, as if our view of Africa is that there are no cities and cars and universities and PhDs. technology. And, yeah, people that are over there trying to fix it, like, we need to come help. Like, well, you know, it's that idea, right? Like, let's first find out, like, let's go talk to the PhDs that are there already. Imagine, <laughs> right? imagine going somewhere. You know, it's funny because, you know, I do a lot of work with children and families. Yeah. And you know, one of the lessons I learned mo- more recently, which I'm embarrassed about, but it's been very, I mean, I've just been thinking about it a lot, which is a lot of times, even though people I work with or people we fund or whoever want to go help or be supportive, whatever it is, whatever the positive spin on whatever right. we're talking about is, you know, there's a sense of, you know, let me show you what works. Right. And that's good. I mean, there's a part of that that's important, right. which is there's an alternative way like with this Adrian Peterson story, yeah. which I could go on and on about. But I think one of the things that's important is wherever you land on it, and I have a lot of feelings about that, one thing you can say about his form of discipline, and I don't even think it should be referred to as discipline, is that there are alternatives that are less violent yeah. and just as effective, if not more. Okay, right. so leave it at that. So you can bring that to a community, not just spanking. I mean, anything, right? right? Anything. But what's fascinating is when you slow down, you're like, wow, this community already knows things. Right. And so part of the job is to say, wow, what can I learn from you and how can we share that with other communities? Because, right. yes, I have stuff to tell you. It's really helpful and there's science, you know. But, wow, you're doing a lot of really cool shit. Right. And I bet you these people I know over wherever could use that, too. And right. that was a real lesson for me, which yeah. is it's not just figuring out the science so you can bring it to people, but that they've already got a kind of science and you, you know, they don't necessarily need your help. You can actually use it right. for other people. Well, and that's the interesting thing. I think it's both about, I mean, we got on this because of lost the space, but that, you know, sort of carving out spaces for men to have those discussions. But also I think that it's really, um, I think that obviously people that are not writers go through this, but like there's this empathetic thing about being a writer, that if you really want to write about the world, you have to actually stop and think about that, yeah. right? That it's not just going in and set like, to write, you have to think about your kids. Like, what don't my kids... Like, they're and not you characters have to be, in your story. You have to be participatory. Right. You know, like, my kids and I, we have a very engaged relationship. Right. It's on. And, you know, 
I try to put it in the book, too. That's not always fun. <laughs> right. And they're not always fun. And sometimes they're assholes, but they're yeah. little kids. You know, like, they're not assholes. I'm just, like, losing my mind I about feel something. like that's almost exactly what you wrote in one of the essays. I might have. Yeah. I might have. It's very hard. I mean, it's not a woe is me. It's very hard. Right. It's just, it's not fucking it's unicorn- like the sun comes up. Like it's not unicorns and rainbows, right. either. Like, it's hard. They get upset. You don't right. want them to be upset. You're a dick. You know, I tell this story. I told it when I was with you. It's not in the book. You know, I'm with my nine-year-old when he's like five, and it's not my it's not my wife's turn to read with him. Like at that point, we both had a trade-off. Right. It, he had to read with me. That was just that night. And my older son really needed some time with my wife. So my younger son just threw a fucking fit. Of course, he's five. He's a little boy. Of course, he's gonna throw a fit. Except he bangs his nose on the door. Oh now. right. And. I'm not that cool about it. Like, I'm not that fucking cool. Like, I'm upset. I'm upset with him for getting so upset that he has to bang his nose, which is ridiculous. Right. And then, but then I get very calm, but I'm like, you know what? We're not going to read together. I mean, it's not going to happen. Um, but if you want to tell a story, like, I'm trying to figure some common ground out. And again, bad parenting. I suck. But, you know, I lie down with my, let's just tell a story. I, and I said, like, I feel like I can't read to you because you threw a fit. And I'm like explaining it to him. Right. I go, but we can do something. And he's crying. And he's done crying. And then... I go, let's tell a story. And I, I know I told you this, but I'm like, there's a skunk in the room. He's like, and a bear. I go, right, the skunk and the bear are talking. I go, what happens next? And my son goes, the skunk says to the bear, I banged my nose and you don't care. And I was like, motherfucker. And I said, what should the bear say? He goes, the bear should say, are you okay? That was like, it. that sounds so bad. I mean, it was such a huge lesson for me. One thing I have now practiced in the intervening years is, are you okay even when I don't want to say it? Right. Even when I'm furious and I'm such an asshole, I always feel my wife's always like, you've gotten really good at that. I'm like, it's really hard. <laughs> really hard. You know, it's really hard. I'm not even used to crying. Yeah. I won't even go and get that tangent. But that's one of the essays because my dad never cried. Yeah. And so I never cried. Not till I was almost 20 years old. Like, I basically didn't cry for like 10 years. <laughs> my kids cry all the time. Yeah. And it's awesome. I love it. And I cry all the time now. But I didn't then. Yeah. So I'm also not that used to that. You know, you're crying over that. And I'll say to my younger son, I don't want to discourage crying. If someone breaks your heart, if I'm mean to you, if you smash your nose on a doorknob, <laughs> you should cry. But if I didn't separate your food on the plate the way you like it separated, I'm not sure that's crying material. Then right. I'm like, who the fuck am I to tell him what crying material is? Right. I'm just not used to it. <laughs> right. You know. Well, listen, we've been here for an hour and 15 minutes. Jesus, I'm sorry about no, that. No, no, this is great. I could do it. I'm ruining your life and everything else. No, no, it's great. It's like half book and then half like man in the 21st <laughs> century. Uh, so thanks. Um, so you, the books that are out now. Uh, Lost in Space well, is most recent. That's that the one. essay collection from Curbside Splendor. And then about a year ago, my novel Orphans came out, which is a science fiction novel. First endeavor in that area. So, And where to go? Where do people go to That find is from Switchgrass, which yeah. is the fiction arm of uh, Northern Illinois Press, NIU oh. Press. Cool. And they have been, they were great. And what's your website? Website, I, my blog, bentanzer.blogspot.com. This blog will change your life. Sort of the mothership. One of these days I got to create a cool website, but I have failed miserably at that so far. <laughs> well, thanks for sitting down and talking to me. Not at all, bro. I really appreciate it. It was great. Thanks. Awesome. Okay. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with Ben. Covered a lot of ground. I suspect he and I are going to be friends for a long time. Don't forget, you can check out the recap for the first two writer's jams at 
thegeekypress.com backslash events. You can also check out uh, the information as we're releasing it about Volume 3, which is coming in February. Find out about all of our books, read our blogs, find out book reviews, recommendations we have. Sign up for the newsletter, which comes out whenever I feel like sending the newsletter out. Um, it's always interesting stuff. And don't forget, leave comments, pass it along to your friends. We'll see you around the internet. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.